Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. everyone today. Can we get into a slightly deeper topic this morning? No one answered. Okay, praise the Lord. Well, I put my email uh, on this presentation. Okay. My email is pastorjdf at gmail.com. And I'm not giving you that email because I think there's anything really special about me. I would just like to share with anyone who wants it for their own personal enrichment and deeper study, I'll send you my PowerPoint. It's my PowerPoint. I I can pretty much do what I want with it. I know some professors who sell theirs online. I just give mine away. Uh, Maybe you can make it better and send it back to me. That's usually my hope. But uh, I I studied for this, and I, I produced way too many slides and had to cut them down. So if you send me an email, I'll send you the big presentation, and you can just... You can just study. But uh, why don't we stand together as we read scripture this morning? I'm real old school when it comes to that. If you have your Bibles, please turn in them with me to Philippians chapter 2. I know that it said Philippians 2, 5 through 11, but I unfortunately will not be able to go too much into depth on verse 9, 10, and 11. We're really going to focus on Philippians 2, 5 through 8. So Philippians 2, starting with verse 5, says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, And became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, Lord, as we look at this passage today, help us to just focus on the reality of it, the truth of it, and the significance of it in our hearts, minds, and lives. This passage is often misunderstood or misrepresented, Lord. We just want to look at it for all that it is in the plain, literal, grammatical structure, Lord. Speak to us today, Father. Lead us and guide us by the power of your Spirit. And in Christ's name we ask. And everyone said in one accord, Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. So I don't usually give messages titles, but I think if we were to give this one a title, The Mind of Christ would be a good title, or let this mind be in you. You see, this is one of the most deeply theological sections in the entire New Testament, and sometimes Bible teachers just say that to pique your interest. I'm not saying that just to pique your interest. This is one of the most deeply theological sections in the entire New Testament. I think most people give Philippians this crazy flyby. I know a lot of teachers do it in four weeks because it's four chapters, but... Philippians is a much deeper book than most people will give it credit. And unfortunately, the section we're going to focus in on today 
is very often understood, uh, misunderstood. Sometimes it's explained very poorly by pastors. There's one very, and I don't want to say who it is because I know a lot of people still love this man, and I actually personally know him. There's one very popular Calvary Chapel pastor who has a commentary, and his section is just, wow. And I'm not going to say who it is, because someone's going to say, that guy's my hero. It's okay, we, we all have our heroes. But I want to just see, what does it say? What does the word of God say? Because in all honesty, if you understand this passage in its proper context, it could change your entire understanding of the New Testament. I mean all the rest of the writings and give you a much clearer picture of who Jesus Christ is. Now, the word we're going to focus in on. Now, I know a lot of people say you never use Greek in the pulpit, you know, on a Sunday morning. And then there are other pastors who say use it every week. And I'm one of those guys who says every now and then you can use just a little bit of it. So can we use just a little bit today? Okay. We're going to be focusing in on what is often known as the kenosis theory. It comes from the Greek word, obviously, kenosis, what I just said, which is taken from the verb kinoo. It's the word that you usually see as either made or to empty in Philippians 2.7. And that's kind of the majority ways. I went and I looked through all the English translations, and most often it's either translated as one of two, emptied himself or made himself of no reputation. So I bet if you're reading your New King James, as I just read a couple minutes ago, made himself of no reputation is, the, is believe it or not, the minority usage. Most other English translations say emptied himself, and that's led to a huge controversy here in America today because the kenosis theory of the liberal church holds that Jesus gave up some of his divine attributes while he was on earth as a man. And in all honesty, the word kinoo has the same semantic range every word on the planet does. You know, we, we can't fall into that exegetical fallacy that so many people do. You know, we hear pastors say, well, you know, whenever you see the word agape, it's the God kind of love. And people go, yeah, absolutely. And I've always said, you know, men agapeo, darkness more than light in John's gospel. Do men have a godlike love for evil? No, that's stupid. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No, that's not what it means at all. Agapeo usually means wholly given over to something or wholly given over to the good of another. Those are the common usages. But we have all kinds of words in English that have a semantic range of meaning. You have to understand No one word means anything. And anyone who's ever told you that has obviously never deeply studied language. Because you can say, what is the definition of the word trunk? And if I didn't give you any context, could you give me the proper definition of trunk? Something your grandma used to store her afghans in at the foot of her bed, right? What about the big thing that swings off the front of an elephant? Is that not a trunk? What is the back of your car? It's a compartment you put stuff in. What's it called? A trunk. Okay. My grandma was real old school because she was from Poland, and she would always say, we're going to go to the swimming hole. Don't forget your trunks. And uh, she meant she meant bathing suit, but she did. She called them trunks. I hate that word to this day, but I miss her a lot. Um, there's, every word has a semantic range of meaning, and words only find true meaning in their connection to other words in a sentence. This is the basis of human 
communication. Amen? So, kino'o in Greek can mean to deprive, to empty or be emptied, to prove hollow, to make nothing, means nothing, empty or even render void. It all depends on what other words it's connected to. So, many now believe that according to this theory, Jesus Christ emptied himself of some of his divine attributes, such as his omniscience, his all-knowingness, his omnipresence, that's being everywhere present, and his omnipotence, him being all-powerful, all while he was on the earth as a man. That is the common misconception today about this chapter. Now, all of these people say it was voluntary in nature, right? It's viewed by all the higher critics as a voluntary self-limiting on Christ's part. He allegedly did this to fulfill his work of redemption. But here's my rub. This is completely unheard of in most of church history. That is no recognized teacher in the first 1800 years of church history thought that the phrase emptied himself or made himself of no reputation in Philippians 2, 7 meant that the son of God actually gave up some of his divine attributes. In all honesty, any doctrine of kenosis, which says Jesus Christ surrendered attributes at the incarnation is in direct conflict with tons of scriptural evidence concerning his person during the incarnation. In short, I often ask people, can God stop being God? No, never. God can't stop being God. God can't lie. God can't go out of existence. There are all kinds of things that God can't do. One of them is stop being God. This new theory of kenosis has crept into the church through the higher criticism of the word of God. And this all started in the 1800s, 1850, definitely 1900s, 1840, 1850, in the German higher criticism movement. They all started saying these things. And in all honesty, it was this attempt to demythalize the Bible. They wanted to take all the mythology out of the Bible. And I'll tell you this much, there is no mythology in the Bible. If you can't get over... In the beginning, God, dot, 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 right? What did God do in the beginning? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything, right? Spontaneous generation, ex nihilo, the Latin, out of nothing. So I tell people, if you can't get over the first miracle in the Bible, which is that a transcendent, almighty God created everything that we see, touch, experience, hear, partake in, did all that, from nothing, if you can't get over that miracle, then stop reading the Bible because the next miracles are going to blow your mind. All right? You, if you can't get over that, I can't get over this miracle here. Well, you can't read the Bible. It is a book of a miraculous, wonderful, working God. Amen? Amen. If you can't, you're not going to be able to get over any of them. Our God is able to break or suspend natural law. Want to know why it's so complex and yet so simple? It's because he's the one who ordered everything. Every single law on the planet has a law giver and a law maker. Our God is both of those. He can suspend or break any of the natural laws because he created all of them. And by the power of his own word, the Bible says he upholds them. So the Bible is filled with miracles. We're never going to get around that. 
But if Jesus somehow in some way emptied himself of his deity or some of his divine attributes, we have a real serious problem. Because Jesus said a lot of other things that wouldn't make sense if that theory holds true. For example, there could be no way that the Lord Jesus could have ever said what he said in John 10.30, if this theory were true. And in John 10.30, he said that he and the Father were one. How could he have said that if this theory is correct? Or... How could Paul in Colossians 2, 9 ever state that Jesus Christ is the fullness of deity in bodily form? Did you guys hear that verse? Jesus Christ is the fullness of deity in bodily form. Wow. And according to Isaiah the prophet, the incarnate Jesus is Emmanuel, which literally in the Hebrew means God with us. And it is restated In Matthew 1, verse 23. If this theory is true, then none of these verses make any sense. Now, to give you some historical insight, this theory came into being due to the fact that the 19th century saw a rise of many new scientific theories. Something like the theory of evolution and things like radical criticism, deconstructionism, taking things back doubting everything. You know what blows my mind about the skeptic? They're skeptical about every single thing under the sun, except for their own radical skepticism. Seriously, you don't see how that flips itself right on its head? That's like trying to balance a pyramid on the point. You know what happens when you invert a pyramid? A sucker falls over. This is called something that is self-refuting. And there's lots of self-refuting logic on the planet today. Now, unfortunately, more than anything, these new theories brought an emphasis on the rediscovery of the real humanity of Jesus, and with it, an emphasis on his self-denial and his self-emptying. But in all honesty, you have to ask yourself, my friends, what do you end up with? You end up with a Savior who is less than God. And I'm going to tell you, and now we have a real issue. Because this is the truth. If Jesus emptied himself of his deity, he's no longer God. And if he's no longer God, he's no longer a worthy sacrifice for sin. He's just a regular old guy. And they have this wacko thing. I'll send you the slides for it if you want them. There's this new radical criticism thing called the ontological bottleneck. And I'll tell you what it means. I'll tell you what they say it means, and I'll tell you how dumb it is a second later. They say, in order for God, in the form of the Son, to transcend ontologically and cross over into humanity, he had to empty himself. Kinoo. There's always a sanctimonious tone in people who really are just not sure they know what they're talking about. It's usually the big clue for me. If you sound smart, some people will think you're smart. That's why I talk dumb on purpose. (laughs) To To get back to the ontological bottleneck. So what they're basically saying is, Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, they don't deny that, crossed over ontologically into becoming a man. And there's the problem. That's not what happened in the Incarnation. 
God did not ontologically change. Ontos in Greek means being. Like you and I are ontos, as in the fact that we are beings. We're human beings, correct? There's different kinds of beings. God is a being of a different order. He's a transcendent being. We are not. Jesus did not ontologically change. He didn't somehow morph his God, you know, being into a human being. That's not what happened at all. Because there can be no metaphysical or ontological change in God. Because God can't change. That's the doctrine of immutability. And that's what it says about our God. He can't change who he is. That's true. And he didn't. But what Christ did in the incarnation is he took another nature unto himself. And his full divinity forever wed itself to humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the only human being who ever had two natures. He has always and always shall be almighty God. And he wed himself to a human nature. So if you never thought of this, you really should. Do you know who we will see face to face when it says we will see God? We will see Jesus. Because he's the only member of the Trinity who, again, wed himself to humanity. You can't see the spirit. You want to know why? He doesn't have a body. He's... He's not made of matter. Like this pulpit is matter. He's not. He's spirit. And that's why it says in the scriptures, no one has ever seen God. Well, I'll tell you why no one has ever seen God. Because if you looked on God and all of his intrinsic glory and beauty, you'd drop dead. That's why. And so this amazing thing happened. And if Jesus is just somehow some great wonderful Galilean rabbi who loved everyone and the Romans were mean and they put him to death. Man, they suck. Oh, man. You know, you've got an issue here. You don't have a savior in that. You know what you have? You have another martyr. Welcome to the list of martyrs. The world has tons of them. No, Jesus is a redeemer. He is a savior. And in all honesty, if he had an ounce of sin in him, he would no longer be a savior. Because this is the old adage theologically. One drowning man can never save another drowning man. You ever thought about that? You're out in the middle of the ocean, you and your old, you know, buddy Zach, you know, and you fishing, you and Zach are fishing out in the boat, you know, and Zach goes, oh, gee, I got a big one, bro. And a fish pulls him over and I go, don't worry, I'll save you. And I jump in after you and I realize, well, hang on a second here. You know, good old Zach, he can't swim. And good old Jason, he can't swim. Now, the best thing I can do is comfort my drowning friend. And the best thing he can do is try and comfort me back. And we can drown together. But neither one of us are going to save each other. And that's the problem. To be a righteous sacrifice for sin, guess what you need to be? Sinless. Sinless. People forget the Bible is a book of miracles. The whole entire incarnation is a miracle. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary that what would be in her womb would be called holy. All right? It's a miracle start to finish. Because I get my theology students who always say, well, you know, Jesus could have got a sin nature from his human mother Mary. And I go, you're absolutely positively correct. But guess what? He didn't. Because it was a miracle. And there was no male partner. There isn't the seed of Adam present. Remember, Jesus in Genesis 3.15 is the promise of the seed of a woman. You know, biologically speaking, that one gets interesting quick, doesn't it? 
Ladies, you're all smart. You, ever, you, you all realize that there's no seed in you, right? Because women carry ovum, or we use the, the easy term, eggs. And it's men who carry seed. So what is seed of a woman? Biologically, it's an impossibility. It means that there would be no male partner. That's touched on in Genesis 3.15. Then it's elaborated upon in Isaiah. Behold, the virgin will conceive, and this shall be a sign to Israel. So who do we have? We have a virgin-conceived Messiah and no transference of Adam's bloodline curse. And you know what that is for all of us? It's a miracle. It's what it is. That's our God. It's a miracle. So let's take a look at the biblical view. Because we can look at the critics all day long and run out of time. Philippians 2. Talking about very nature God. Paul's affirmation that Christ was in, again, in nature, in very nature God, or you will have sometimes in the form of God, is extremely significant to this debate. And it's where we need to turn our attention because Christ in his essential being is and always has been eternal God. You see, the incarnation is something that happens in the space-time continuum. At a point in time, just like Paul said, in the fullness of time, God sent his only son, born of a woman, right? You can go right to Galatians. Right. So the incarnation is something that happened at a point in time. But Jesus, being God in nature, transcends time. He's always been God. At a certain point, when it was proper, he joined himself to humanity. He has always been God every bit as much as the Father and the Holy Spirit. This is why we talk about co-equal and co-eternal in the triune Godhead. But I want to take a quick focus and reread Philippians 2, 5 through 7, just so we can get it very fresh in our minds. Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So we have to focus in on the word nature or form for a second. Now, the word nature expresses the sum total of those characteristics and qualities which make the thing the precise thing that it really is. And I know that sounded really confusing. Nature is basically a description of everything that makes you what you are. Right? So we can think about human nature, and we know everything about what makes us human. We live. We grow. Unfortunately, whether we like it or not, we all die. All right? We're very finite. We have all these different things that make humans what they are. Humans are uniquely created in the image of God. Humans, unlike every other thing on this planet created, have something no, no one in the whole floor of the animal kingdom have. You know what that's called? It's called volition. We have a will. You know what animals go on? Instinct. At no, t- at no point in all of created human history has one sockeye salmon said to another in the middle of the ocean, you know, I think it might be good if you and me and 10,000 of our friends go back to that little stream we were birthed in up in Alberta. Do you think that's a good idea? Well, I don't know. I've got a lot of stuff going on here. Have you seen the smelt? They're running very heavily along the coast today. I'm rather hungry. I could go for some smelt. What about you, Bob? I don't know. I've got this strong pull. Something's just drawing me back now. These things never happen. 
All of a sudden, as if something like a light switch flips in them, the sockeye salmon says, hey, look at me. I'm fat enough. I'm sexually mature. It's time to go back and breed and die in the stream that I was born in five to seven years ago. No, it's instinct. They follow it because it's been genetically pre-programmed by Almighty God, by his own hand. It's programmed into them. Not human beings. God actually has given us the ability to really, really make choices. We don't go on instinct. And I know some people say, well, you've got to use your instincts. You don't have any instincts. You have a free will. It's 10,000 times better. You can set a stake down in front of your drooling dog. I'm a cat guy, so I talk about dogs drooling a lot. It's like my cat's no smarter than the average dog, trust me. Actually, he's an idiot. If we're going to really, he knocks his food all over the place. Drives Linda and I crazy. But he's good, though. We love him. We haven't thrown him out the window yet. But you can set a, a T-bone steak right in front of Fido, right? You look at him, you go, no, no, no. And the cellular sea dog, they start salivating. There's this drool puddle underneath of him, right? And as long as you're sitting there, you know, just yelling in his face, and he, some derogatory thing, I'm sure in his head he's hearing blah, 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 blah. Blah, blah, blah. But he can hear the tone in your voice. But if you walk away and go and, I don't know, tend to your rose garden for 15 minutes, you come back, what do you find? You find an empty plate. Because Fido's instincts inside of his brain were going, meat, 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 delicious, delicious, life-giving meat. It's all he could think of. And you care less about the cutesy names you call them. Who's your good boy? Who's your good boy? He could care less about that. His brain is locked on that meat, man, because that is in his nature. That's who he is. That's why when you take the same scenario and you put a, you put a little baby, you put a little toddler, you know, right up in their little high chair, and you slide a, a plate of freshly sliced bananas and some, you know, goose liver in front of them, which one does the baby always go to? He ain't eating the goose liver unless there's something wrong with him. He's eating the bananas because that would be in his nature. Go for the thing that's delicious and sweet. Follow it. But even that little teeny tiny baby makes a cognitive choice to go for that which he already knows is sweet. Empirically, he's already eaten bananas. He knows what they taste like. Goose liver smells foul even when it's fresh. We know what it is to be human, who we are, our attributes. We have a will. We have a mind. We're thinkers. We have emotions. That's what it is to be human. So it is the sum total of those characterizing qualities which make the thing precisely what it is. When we say nature and we apply it to God, the word refers to the sum of the characteristics which make the being we specifically call God, specifically God, rather than say some other kind of being, either be it an angel or a man, or even an animal. Being. Being is a funny word, too. Because none of us, in essence, have being. For being is existence. God has being. We merely partake in it. God has brought us into it. The honest-to-goodness truth is that I'll tell you one of the greatest misnomers in the entire English language is, don't get mad at me, someone out there, it's human being. Want to know why? It will be a lot better. Human becoming. Because we grow our whole lives, don't we? Yeah, when you're a little kid, you got peach fuzz coming up on your hair, right? And then by the time you're 35, you got peach fuzz in your ears. 
and you'd rather have it on your head than have it in your ears. And then, should God give you grace and you make 45, you lose all your hair on your head, and then you have it in places you've never wanted it, like your back. I always wanted to go to a doctor and say, hey, can you take that back hair and put it on top of my head? How funny would it look? Pretty funny, right? Yeah, I was just asking. Why is our God holy? You ever thought of that? You ever think of it deeply while you're reading the word? Our God is holy because he is holy other. Our God is H-O-L-Y, holy, because he's W-H-O-L-L-Y. He's holy other. There's no one like him. And that's the amazing thing about our God. From him, all things are created and find their, their being in him. Again, the word being truly means existence. We only find our existences in the one who has ultimate being. I am that I am that I am is God in revealing himself to Moses in the wilderness. Do you remember it? It's called the tetragrammaton in Hebrew, big fancy word. yud heh Yahweh, or Yahweh. We're not sure how to pronounce it. Because the Hebrews thought it was so holy, they didn't pronounce it. So the true pronunciation of God's covenantal name, someday he'll tell us how to say it for sure. Maybe we've been saying it right the whole time. Maybe, they're, maybe we're way off base. But in the Hebrew, that basically means I am that I am that I am that I am. And that is the whole focus on being. Now, all of us are becoming. Only truly God is being. There is nothing in this entire universe, not one speck of cosmos, cosmic dust floating 10,000 light years away that doesn't have its source in Almighty God, in Him. So Jesus in the incarnation was 100% God and 100% human being. The whole point of Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, is that whereas Christ Jesus has been God for all eternity, now, now He had an additional nature, a human nature. He took that unto Himself. And the incarnation involved many, many things. It was the gaining of human attributes, not an ontological change. God didn't change in his being. He forever wed his divinity, humanity in the person of Christ. There aren't two people in Christ. There's one. There is only Jesus. Do you ever read anywhere in your gospels where Jesus is walking around interchangeably talking to himself, nature to nature? All right, here, listen here, God, God style nature. What I really want to do is go get a burger. Well, you know human nature. No, Jesus isn't bipolar. You don't see any of that. You never confound or mix the natures. You don't do that. What Jesus did, he did as one person. And what's interesting is, as you study the Gospels, sometimes you see the Lord Jesus Christ act out of his divinity, and sometimes you see Jesus speak or act out of his humanity. Do you need to see one right next to each other? Because people always say, well, if you could only show me one right next to each other. How about at the tomb of Lazarus? Where he says first, where is he whom I love? Where have you laid him? Jesus in his, again, full humanity says, well, which tomb is it? Where, do you, where did you actually, where did you put him? Which sepulcher is he in? Then moments later, the shortest verse in the entire Bible is what? Jesus wept. Human, emotions, 
Have you ever been at a funeral and been completely okay? And then maybe one person shares one little thing, a memory, something you've maybe forgotten about in the depth of your mind, and then a wave of emotion sweeps over you and you are uncontrollably sobbing? I'm not the only one, right? Okay, thank goodness. We're all human. Jesus was really human. He wept over the depth of, of a true friend. Uh, really, seriously, Lazarus was dead. He was in the tomb for four days. You know what they told him? Lord, we, we really shouldn't roll the stone away. It's not really that great of an idea. We know what happens on day four. I can tell you this much. I've been to Israel. It's a rather warm climate, especially in Bethany. The King James is the best. It says, Lord, let us not roll back the rock. He stinketh. King James has got style. But basically, it just says, man, there's human decay has set in. Forget about rigor mortis. There are other funky things happening in that sepulcher. Let's not roll the stone away. No, but Jesus says, roll the stone away. And when they roll it away, he says, Lazarus, come forth. That was not Jesus's humanity. That's full on God deity. So we see Jesus act out of his human nature and act out of his divine nature. It happens all over the Bible, all throughout the Gospels. We just don't look hard enough because I think we have one systemic problem in the church today. It's become a big buzzword today, hasn't it? It's systemic, systemic. Yeah. We have one systemic problem in Christianity today is it's Christians either A, don't read their Bibles or read it at such breakneck speed, they're not understanding their Bibles. Brothers and sisters, in the name of Christ, do yourself a favor. Slow down. I know we all live in New Jersey, okay? I know everything here is now, now, now. I know it's fast, 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 right? You see people honking their horns in a McDonald's drive-thru because it's been 38 seconds and they still don't have their burger, fries, and Diet Coke. I get it. I, I get where we're at. I had a father who was so impatient, he used to stand in front of the microwave and microwave popcorn. What, is, what does popcorn take? Two minutes and 30 seconds? Is that the average bag? My dad would stand in front of it and go, come on! Dad, I hope you're not watching online because now everyone knows. The incarnation, again, involved the gaining of human attributes, not the giving up of any of his divine attributes. Jesus didn't, there's no way for Jesus to rid himself of who he is. He couldn't have said the things he said. How does he tell Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree? You ever get that one? I saw you under the fig tree. Jesus didn't say, I knew you were under the fig tree. Jesus doesn't have a high-powered telescope. He's like, oh, well, there he is. Because, you know, they didn't exist 2,000 years ago. No, when Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree, and then he tells Nathaniel quite literally what he was reading. Genesis 12, Jacob's ladder. 1812. Let's get that right. Genesis 12 is the call of Abraham. Totally different. Okay, so look, what blew Nathaniel's mind is that Jesus said, you'll see greater things. The Son of Man descending and ascending, just as the angels were ascending and descending on the ladder that went up in Jacob's dream. You ever thought of the fulfillment of that? Because everyone stopped there and like, wow, this is mind-blowing. And Nathaniel basically says, phew, man, absolutely, you are the Messiah of Israel. I mean, he was totally convinced. He became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and one of the 12 apostles. But he ever thought of this? Do you know the fulfillment of that is that Nathaniel was there in Acts 1-8 where Jesus was visibly, bodily, physically taken up into the clouds. 
you do realize that's an absolute prophetic fulfillment. For he saw Jesus in his flesh. That is the descending of the Son of Man. And then where's the ascending? He was brought back up to the right hand of the Father. I just love the Bible. How it is never wrong. Even science today is only catching up with our ancient book. So this is what Paul meant in saying that Christ was taking the form of a bondservant. Coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man in verses 7 and 8 of Philippians 2. Jesus literally became a servant. I mean, does that not blow your minds? Do you understand the gravity and the weight and the glory of that? He being almighty God condescended, lowered himself and became the servant of all. That's the doctrine, properly understood, of kenosis. Not that Jesus emptied himself as divine attributes. He made himself of no reputation. You've already seen in the verse. He didn't have to grasp being equal with God. Want to know why he didn't have to? Because he was. Because he was. But he being God became a slave. And that's amazing. You see, just as the phrase form of God in Philippians 2.6 points to the full deity of Christ, so the phrase form of a bondservant in Philippians 2.7 points to the full humanity of Christ. And that's what we have. Jesus is fully God and fully man. You know what Martin Luther said? Who can fathom it? You can spend the rest of your day thinking on that philosophically and theologically and not come up with it not have a great answer but it's still the truth you see this is what we call in bible exposition an intended parallel paul did this on purpose he did it on purpose to show that jesus just as much as he is fully god is also fully man jesus as eternal god took on an additional complete nature and that's a totally complete Human nature. Now, it's amazing because it says he came in the likeness of men. And the word likeness indicates similarity, but difference. Though Christ Jesus' humanity was absolutely genuine, Messiah Jesus was different from all other humans in that he was completely sinless. And I'll tell you this much. This is where people really get wrapped up in their own heads and their own theological underwear. I'll ask you a question real quick. Is sin intrinsic to humanity? Come on, be bold. It's okay to be wrong. No, it's not. For Adam and Eve in the garden were created innocent, my friends. When did sin come into the garden? When Eve was beguiled of the serpent and went it off of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, stop. No. See, this is what makes our God so awesome in the fact that he thinks everything through. No. Sin is not intrinsic to human nature. It is intrinsic to us because how were we all born? One mom and one dad the last time I checked. Right. Now it has been inherited. That's why King David can say, in sin did my mother conceive me. It's not that his mother was some wretched sinner. It's that she just was a sinner. 
And if you follow the rest of Genesis, like begets like. We know that dogs give birth to dogs and cats give birth to cats and birds give birth to, you know, birth to birds. And what do humans give birth to? Humans. But inherently, what are humans? We're all sinners, thanks to Adam and Eve. Now sinners beget other sinners. So no, the truth of the matter is, to the original pair of human beings living on this earth, no, sin is not intrinsic. God is not the author of evil. No, humanity in the garden fell. That's why we call it the fall or original sin. Whatever terminology you like, both are correct. So no, because people say all the time, well, Jesus really couldn't, then he's not really human. Well, then Adam and Eve weren't really human. Can we think of anyone else? No. You've got to put on your thinking cap. You've got to go back to that good garden theology. There is a whole lot for us to learn in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Tremendous amounts of things to learn. And in all honesty, Hebrews 4.15 is one of the greatest things to comfort us. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Now let me tell you something. Being tempted is not sinful. It's responding to the temptation and giving in. That's what's sinful. And just, just because, again, just because Christ didn't succumb to the temptations doesn't mean the temptations weren't truly real. I can't wait. Pastor Joe is going to teach on it next week, so I'm going to shut up now. It's as clear as day. We have a high priest who can sympathize with us. You ever think about that? You ever think, well, Jesus can't really know my sorrow. How can Jesus know my sorrow? Oh, I don't know. He came into his own and his own received him not. How about the one who stayed there steadfastly with him for three years? He who shared bread at my table lifted his heel against me. You know, Judas was a disciple of Christ for three years. Saw all the miracles. All of it. All of it. And then he sold Jesus out for 30 stinking pieces of silver. You do realize that's one month's wage, right? That would be the equivalent of selling out your best friend today for fifteen dollars to $2,000. And it's not just selling them out. It's selling them up the river. All right? The Pharisees were very clear what they wanted to do to Jesus. They wanted to kill him. They wanted him gone out of Judea. That's why he was so guilt-ridden. So you think on this. The next time a good friend stabs you in the back, do you know why 1 Peter 5, 6 says we can cast our cares on Christ? It's truly because he cares for us. But watch this. It's because he understands human nature. Most of Israel did not accept him as Messiah. Not in his three-year mission when he went and preached throughout all of Israel. They didn't. And I'm sure there are tons of people who were standing there in the triumphal entry who were shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! which is Aramaic, for save now, save now. I'm sure there were people shouting that there who a week later were probably also shouting, crucify him, we won't have this man rule over us. You think Jesus knows what it's like to be stabbed in the back, betrayed, hated on, despised of men? Well, the good thing is, brothers and sisters, that we can go to the Lord Jesus Christ with all of life's, life's hurts and disappointments And Christ knows. He's a faithful high priest. You see, these verses indicate that Jesus Christ in eternity past 
continually and forever existed in the form of Almighty God while outwardly manifested his divine attributes as a man. This is the one who was born from the womb of Mary as a human being, all the while retaining his full deity and power. But the question remains, in what way did Jesus make himself nothing when he became a servant during the incarnation? That's what people are hung up on. Well, Holy Scripture indicates that it was necessary for Christ to give up the outer appearance of God, who he truly is intrinsically, in order to take upon himself the form of a man. Of course, Christ never actually surrendered his divine glory. It's an impossible view. This very idea violates the unchangeable nature of God. However, Jesus did veil his glory during the incarnation. Why? So that other humans on earth could exist in his presence. They could, no one could have existed in Jesus' glorious divinity. When he was in his glorious estate, it would have never happened. Remember Moses? What did Moses ask God? I want to see your face. You know what God said? You see my face, you'll drop dead, Mo. It ain't never going to happen. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you and you can see my backside. That's it. And you know, Moses was a pretty humble and holy man, amen? No. No one can see God's face in their own fallen state. We're still fallen beings. We're redeemed. We're saved. But we are not yet glorified. No one on this side of eternity can look at God's face and live. Now, on the Mount of Transfiguration, prior to his crucifixion, Jesus allowed his intrinsic inner glory to shine forth for a brief moment illuminating the whole mountainside in Matthew 17, 1 through 3. Nevertheless, it was necessary for Jesus to veil his pre-incarnate glory in order to dwell amongst mortal men. Let's look at it real quick. Luke 9, 27 through 31, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And isn't it interesting? A lot of people level here, Luke 9.27, and never finish the verse. They said, well, this is why we can't trust Jesus, because he said there were people standing there who, you know, wouldn't taste death before they saw the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God never even came. No, it's a euphemism. It's kingdom of God is God in all his glory. Because in all honesty, what happened? About eight days later, guess what he did? He took Peter and James and John, and he was transfigured, which basically means Jesus's inward brilliance Holiness and glory was turned outward for a second, and it was enough to light up the mountain. That's amazing. Again, could Jesus have done this if he emptied himself of his divine attributes? No, of course not. See, this is the very basis of the rest of the passage. Verse 9 and 10 of Philippians 2 declares that, the Father bestowed on Jesus the name above every other name. Why? Because there's no one like him. And at that name, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But how are we to have the mind of Christ in us? 
And I would say application-wise, in a tangible way, how are we to have the mind of Christ in us? I can do do nothing better than close with a, a beautiful passage of John. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn with me, you can turn to John 13, and we'll look at verses 1 through 10. John 13, starting with verse 1, says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose up from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And she said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. Peter, you don't need a shower. You just need your dirty feet cleaned. See, this passage is unbelievable. It shows us that Jesus Christ, who is the great and awesome God, is also the great and awesome servant. The foot washing described here in John's meal, we often call it the Last Supper, doesn't appear in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what occurs in those gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, is related to the institution of the Lord's Supper. That doesn't actually occur here in John. Now, nevertheless, there's plenty of reason for us to believe that this is the same meal found in the synoptic gospels. John, Mark, Luke, and, and Matthew, they all have the same account. But what we're getting is we're getting John's perspective, and it's a little different. One reason we can make such an identification is that in both John and the synoptics, Jesus announced at the meal the presence of the betrayer, which resulted in a sense of real uneasiness amongst his disciples. Because one by one, you know what they all ask? Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Now, this is what a lot of people miss in this passage. Do you realize no one in the 12 thought Judas was the betrayer? Even when he got it from the table, he, they all thought that Jesus sent him on an errand because he was, he was the treasurer. He kept the money back. You ever hear that old phrase, never judge a book by its cover? That's as true as it gets. Grandma was right again. You never judge a book by its cover. For while man looks on the outward appearance, it is God who looks at the heart. Judas looked just like the other apostles. But he wasn't. Instead of basking in the glow of power and authority, Jesus emptied or humbled himself and adopted the form here and the posture or role of a servant. 
just like it says in Philippians 2, 7. As indicated in connection with the story of John the Baptist, right? Who in John 1, 27 said, I can't, I'm not even worthy to bow down and untie his sandals. Touching the feet was regarding as a menial slave work and as such was primarily an assignment given to Gentiles, slaves, women, and children in the Jewish society 2,000 years ago. When you walked into someone's house, if they didn't have slaves, their children were washing your feet. If they didn't have slaves or children, then his wife was washing your feet. Now, I'm not saying it's good to look at something as demeaning, but I want you to get the cultural context. Get this. It was a low thing. Now, most people don't know why they washed your feet when you walked into someone's house. Well, Jews didn't sit at tables and chairs the way we do today. You ever hear the phrase recline a table? Reclining a table literally means laying on the floor with a pillow. So in Israel, I got to experience this firsthand. And I got someone's feet two inches from my face, just as my feet were two inches from someone else's face. But guess what happened? We all had our feet washed at that meal. And I can tell you this much. Everyone thinks it's the person who goes around and who washes the feet, who's so, you know, it's like that humbling thing. Let me tell you something. It's super humbling to let someone wash your feet. Very, very humbling. Very humbling. But Jesus did what no one else did. Do you recognize that? No one else out of all the apostles did this very common customary thing. Jesus did it. You see, students were responsible to the rabbis to perform menial tasks of labor. But touching the feet was clearly not even expected, even amongst students and rabbis. It was relegated to someone else. In a society that was very conscious of status symbols, because remember, it's an honor-shame society. Eastern society is different than Western society. We're completely different. We have a right and wrong concrete structure. In the Asian culture, which, just so you know, Israel is part of the Asian continent. Go look on a map. You'll see I'm right. In the Oriental Asian cultures, it's honor and shame. This is why if you bring shame on your father's name, the village would stone you to death. Jesus lived in an honor-shame society, and he was completely unashamed to do the unthinkable. He was in every way a complete servant. Did you ever get the picture of it? Jesus laid aside his garments. Did you hear that? Garments. Jews only wore two. Cloaks and tunics. Cloak outward, tunic next to your skin. Jesus took all of his clothes off and wrapped a towel around his waist. Yes, Jesus was naked for a second, and he put a towel around himself. Do you get that? Do you get the, the unbelievable picture of that? This is the same Messiah who stepped out of heaven and veiled himself with humanity to take the sin and shame upon his body on the cross, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As Jesus walked around with that probably very clean towel and washed each disciple's feet, more and more dirt would have been transferred off their feet and onto the towel with which he girded himself. Jesus' whole picture there of washing the disciples' feet is a total picture of the incarnation. The God who put on flesh. 
for us. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, simply today, I want to leave you with this. How are we to have the mind of Christ Jesus formed in us? Stop looking to be served and ask Almighty God how you can serve. If Christ our Savior, who be God, came down and gave his life a ransom for many, and purely and absolutely and in a totality modeled servanthood for us, that's what it is to have the mind of Christ in us. Amen? Let us pray. Father God, there's no way we can do any of this by ourselves. We can't wake up today and declare that we will do all things in your name. We can't wake up in the morning and just muster through things that will never, ever last. Father, what we need is we need your unending, unceasing, matchless grace in our lives, Father. Lord, we want to be busy about your work. We want to be servants, Father. But what it requires, it requires transformation in us. And so, oh God, as we yield ourselves to you, we ask and pray right now. In the blessed name of Jesus, our Savior, Father God, radically transform our hearts. Radically transform us, Lord God that we would not be caught up in the society of consumerism here in America, but that instead of consumerism, we would rightfully yield to you and believe that we are not consumers, we are providers. What can we do, Lord? How can we step out of our way and be a blessing? What can we do to serve people in the name of Jesus and show people that you alone are good, that you alone are God, and you are still high and lifted up, and seated in glory on your throne. Father God, we ask that you would make it a living, breathing reality in us. Transform us, mold us, and make us, O oh God. You are the potter and we are the clay. Put us back again, back again, O oh God, on the spinning wheel and have your way. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org Thanks for listening and may God bless.